Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. All right. Well, hi, everybody. Good morning. Welcome on the Super Bowl Sunday. I hope you all have a wonderful uh, afternoon watching the ball game. My name is Donnie Abbott. It's so good to be with all of you this morning. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Timberline. I come over here and visit with you about every six weeks or so. And uh, something that I do on most weeks is I watch the previous weekend's uh, message from here at Timberland, at Windsor, and last week, wow, wow, that was so fun, wasn't it? Baptism weekend, and uh, many folks were baptized. I couldn't get over how many people were baptized in, in their street clothes. That was so cool. Talk about commitment, right? Well, today, we're going to continue our teaching series in the Gospel of Mark by looking at the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But before we get to our passage this morning, it was somewhere around the year 1577 when a Spanish Catholic priest by the name of John of the Cross, he wrote a poem called The Dark Night of the Soul. And this is a poem that consists of eight stanzas that describe the transition that a person's soul makes between leaving their earthly body and being united with God. Now, in modern times, this phrase has come to signify significant uh, spiritual deserts in a person's spiritual life, where it almost feels like uh, a person uh, has been abandoned by God. And as we'll see in our passage this morning, Jesus experienced this dark night of the soul at a very profound level. We'll pick up in Mark chapter, chapter 14, and this scene occurs right after Jesus hosted uh, an intimate Passover meal with 12 of his closest friends. You remember that from last week. And although the evening began on friendly terms, it didn't end that way as a betrayer was in their midst and set into motion events that would lead Jesus to the cross. So we pick up in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. God's word reads like this. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? 
Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now there's a lot going on in this scene, isn't there? I mean, talk about a scene that is just dripping with drama. And the setting for this drama is the Garden of Gethsemane. And gardens, they interestingly play a prominent role throughout the story of God as found in the scriptures. Of course, we're all familiar with the first garden, the Garden of Eden, where another dramatic scene unfolded. In Genesis 2, we read, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden he were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now Eden, Eden, this perfect place, was a garden where God placed mankind to enjoy his creation, but also to enjoy a deep, wonderful relationship with him. But as we know, at some point, man rebelled and sinned against God, and the relationship that they once enjoyed had now been broken. Now, while that scene plays out in the first book of God's story, we can turn to the last book in Scripture and read about how God restores through another garden that which has been broken. Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street, of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. And somewhere in the middle of these two gardens is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the account of Jesus at Gethsemane is found in all four of the Gospels. Matthew and Mark's are almost identical in nature. Luke's is a little bit shorter, but he provides us with an interesting angelic visitor that the other three don't mention. And of course, John's account focuses almost entirely on Jesus's arrest. Now, Gethsemane is a Hebrew word that means oil press. Just as olives are pressed to produce the rich liquid that people the world over enjoy, so too would Jesus come to Gethsemane and be pressed by the weight of the sins of the world. And if you were to travel to Gethsemane, to Jerusalem today, a visit to Gethsemane would definitely be on your itinerary. Now, the size of the garden 
is probably much smaller today than it was in the day that Jesus lived. And no contrary to what some might believe, the olive trees currently there, although they're very old, were, are, were not present during Jesus's ordeal. As those trees, they were probably burned by the Romans when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. But in this account in Mark, we see how shortly after dinner, Jesus provides you and I with an example to follow. That when faced with hardship and life gets overwhelming, to pray. So that's the first point if you're following along in the outline. When faced with hardship, pray. Now that might seem like a no-brainer. I totally get that. Uh, of course, when faced with hardship, you and I should pray. But if you're anything like me, I actually find it much easier to pray when things are not going so well in my life than I do when things are going good. But in this moment, Jesus does what he often did in either good times or bad, and that was to pray. Now, the challenge for him in Jerusalem on that day, uh, it was bursting at the seams with people who had arrived in town to celebrate the Passover. And although figures vary greatly about how large the population of Jerusalem was at the time, it's safe to say that the population swelled by three or four times during Passover week and could have easily approached 150,000 people. So the place to pray during all of the hustle and bustle going on in the city was the Garden of Gethsemane. And during that week, it would have been the quietest place outside of town and was a place that both Jesus and his disciples were familiar with as they visited there often. And as we read, accompanying Jesus in the garden are Peter, James, and John, the three guys whom Jesus trusted the most. They were also the three guys who were most prominent in forming the early church. And this one early church father, he said that Peter, James, and John were the ones who saw the glories of the transfiguration and also the griefs at Gethsemane. So what we see in this scene is the importance of prayer, but also the importance of friendship, especially when one is facing struggles and challenges in life. And we all get this, right? We all understand our need for friends, people who will offer support and encouragement, people who will bear with us in good times and bad, Peter, James, and John were that to Jesus. Now, these next three points in our outline were shaped by Pastor John Mark Comer's guide called The Solitude Practice. And I highly recommend you check that out, The Solitude Practice. Because the content in that guide is so rich that I wanted to share it with you this morning. Because what is observed with Jesus at Gethsemane are three kind of three movements of the soul, three ways Jesus engages with the Father in prayer during challenging times. And the first movement that we observe is this Jesus gives God his feelings. He gives God his feelings through lament. You know, one thing 
that I love about the scriptures is that its writers did not hide the humanity of its characters. In this passage, we see three times how Jesus separated himself from his friends to go off and pray. And each time he came back, what did he find them doing? Sleeping. Yeah, a very human thing to do, right? Especially late at night. We also see in this passage, perhaps like no other passage, we see the humanity of Jesus. Now, throughout the Gospels, we've read how Jesus is the one who heals, he restores, and provides comfort to those in need. We've seen how Jesus extends care to lepers and blind people and dead people and other people who are just unclean. But we have also seen Jesus display human emotions as well. You remember the time when his good friend Lazarus died. Jesus wept. He was overcome with grief. We've also seen him overturn the money changer tables in the temple courtyard. And in our passage today, we see his vulnerability. Here he's sharing his feelings. He's pouring out his heart to God in lament. Now, lament is, is a bit of an interesting word. It's one that we tend to shy away from because usually what's involved with lament is pain and suffering. But as we all know, pain and suffering are as much a part of life as is joy and hope. And the dictionary defines lament as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow passionate expression of grief or sorrow. I like how Denver Seminary professor, Dr. Douglas Grodice explains lament. He says lament is facing inescapable suffering with virtue. Dr. Grodice, he learned firsthand what it was like to face suffering with virtue as his wife, who was in her 50s, died from dementia. And one thing Dr. Grodice learned during this difficult season is that lament is holding deep sorrow over tragedies and struggles in life and simply sharing those struggles and tragedies with God. And that's exactly what God wants from you and I. He wants us to cry out to him when we are experiencing pain in our lives. Now, this lamenting with God can take on many different forms. One can be angry at God. You can yell at God. You can be frustrated with God. But we typically don't like to think of interacting with God in those ways because we, we think there's something wrong if we display such emotions to God. Like it's, it's irreverent or it's unholy or it's not the Christian thing to do. So instead, what many of us do is we stuff. We stuff those feelings or we go on to express those feelings in unhealthy ways. Some people will pursue addictive behavior to numb what they're feeling. Others will simply just kind of disassociate and maintain a more stoic approach to their struggles. But as we see with Jesus' example, lament is specific. 
in that he shows us how we are to take our heartache and pain and sorrows to our loving Father. The second movement of the soul is Jesus gives God his desires. Please, Father, I I don't want to do this. You know, when we lament, we're sharing with God what it is that's troubling us, but we also are sharing with him what we would like him to do with what it is that's troubling us. What is our desire in this moment or season of lament? And here, Jesus is asking God to take this cup away from him. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm reading this passage of scripture, and I'm like, cup? What, what, what cup? Did Jesus have a cup in the garden with him? Where did this cup come from? Well, what we oftentimes forget is the significance of the use of cup throughout scripture. We read in several places how it's used as a metaphor for the blessings of God. In Psalm 16, we read, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The classic Psalm, Psalm 23 states, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It's also used as a reference of salvation, Psalm 116. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. But the use of cup can also represent God's wrath or his judgment. A cup of judgment was a common symbol that people were used to in the ancient world. We know that the Greek philosopher Socrates, instead of being humiliated and cast off to live in exile, he drank a cup of hemlock, which was a cup of judgment. And we find the metaphor of cups as judgment in several places throughout scripture. One is in Isaiah, where we read, awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. You who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. The cup of God's wrath, Isaiah refers to here, would take the form of the Assyrian invasion of Jerusalem somewhere around 700 BC. And then moving over to the prophet Jeremiah, we read in chapter 25, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom you send it, drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. This cup of God's wrath would take the form of the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So we can see that metaphorically, Cups were used as an instrument of God's wrath and judgment. And this is kind of lost on us modern readers today, but in the ancient world, drinking this cup of judgment was just a natural thing to do for the consequences of sin. So with that in mind, 
as we head back to the scene in Gethsemane, the wrath of God is the cup Jesus is referencing here. He's asking God, if possible, take this cup away. Because this is a cup that's filled with every sin known to mankind. It's a cup that holds the very wrath of God. You might remember last week in the upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus offered his friends a cup of salvation and blessing. But here at Gethsemane, Jesus would drink a cup of judgment and wrath and death by willingly going to the cross in your place and mine. He drank the cup of God's wrath and judgment so you and I would not have to. Charles Spurgeon, the famous pastor, he said this, but his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both of his hands and at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry for all his people. He drank it all, endured it all, he suffered all. And finally, Jesus resigns himself to our final point. Jesus gives God his trust. He comes to this place of surrender. In the first garden, we saw how mankind essentially said to God, not your will, but my will be done. And this attitude of selfishness is at the core of who we are as humans, isn't it? But at Gethsemane, Jesus continues the restorative work of humanity by saying to the Father, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And this posture of trust may sound familiar to some of us because it's exactly how Jesus taught his friends to pray and what has become known as the Lord's Prayer. Why don't we say it together? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See here, we see Jesus has brought himself to a place of trust and surrender to the will of God. And we've seen this sort of godly trust and surrender in the lives of several other characters in scripture. You might remember these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken captive during the Babylonian invasion along with their friend Daniel. And while they were in exile, they were told to bow down and worship a 90-foot-tall statue of the king. And when they refused, they were to be thrown into a fiery, hot furnace. But this is what they said to the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But here's, a, here's this point of surrender and trust. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
We see the same heart of trust and surrender in this young teenage Jewish girl named Esther who became queen. When she was made aware of a plot to exterminate the Jewish people, her cousin Mordecai begged her to use her position to save her people. Esther chapter four says, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go into the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. From these two examples and the example of Jesus in the garden, there comes a point in our lives where we have simply exhausted all that we can humanly, all that we can earthly do, and we come to a place of surrender to the will of God. Now, I don't know if you quite caught on to this, but Jesus, he did pray and ask the Father, is there any other way? Was there any other way than the cross? What followed? Silence. Silence. And that is the hard part of our prayer life, isn't it? Is that like with Jesus, it can seem as if our prayers are met by nothing but silence. They stop at the ceiling. And this apparent silence of God is one of the most confounding aspects of our faith, isn't it? Because as we read the scriptures, we read about a God who does speak. Remember, this is a God who spoke the universe into existence. He spoke to God. He spoke to Abraham and other characters in scripture. But here's the thing. Here's the thing for you and I to remember. Is any silence you and I may experience of God is not to be confused with his absence. This is so important for us to remember. I know that many of us here this morning and online are experiencing a tough season in life. You're experiencing your own dark night of the soul. And the great temptation is that when we suffer through difficulty, we tend to think that God is absent, that he is silent, that he's forgotten all about us, or even worse, that he's indifferent to what we're going through. But that's not what we read in scripture. That's not what we see with Jesus at Gethsemane. That although as Jesus predicted, all of his friends, they ran off into the night, deserting him to his fate. But the father did not desert Jesus. In fact, in Luke's account, it says that God sent a supernatural being, an angel, to strengthen Jesus. So even when God calls us to a dark night of the soul, his presence is with us. And God may not send you a heavenly angel, but perhaps he'll send an angel that appears in human form, like a co-worker or a neighbor, a family member, 
or a friend. God provides us with these people at just the right time in our lives to remind us that he is still with us. And of course, we also read many times in scripture how God reminds his people during great difficulty to fear not, for I am with you. And this is such an important theme that one of the last things Jesus said to his followers, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so God is with you today. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for our gathering this morning. God, we're mindful that what we're doing as followers of yours many followers of yours around the world cannot do. God, right now we pray for the persecuted church, that you would be with those folks who cannot worship you out in the open, but instead are worshiping under trees outside of a village or perhaps in underground tunnels, jail cells, wherever they may be. We pray that you would comfort them and strengthen them in their time of need. We pray, God, for those here this morning who are experiencing a dark night of the soul. We pray, God, that you would prove to be their great provider. You would prove to be their great healer. You would prove to be their comforter in their time of need. God, we thank you for your word as it's holy and it's true. Jesus, thank you for the example that you gave us to follow when facing hardships and struggles. To bring our concerns and cares to you, to bring our desires to you, and then finally, help us to surrender our will to you. And God, we admit that's not easy. Holy Spirit, we need your help in doing that. May you go ahead of us throughout the rest of our day. Grant us your favor and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit timberlinechurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.